Welcome in to the Free Retiree Show, where we help you transform your life so you can become financially free. In this show, we'll give you the inside track on how to excel in your career, filter out the noise surrounding your finances to help you make smart financial decisions, and we'll learn from thought and business leaders who can help you live your best life. Thank you for tuning into the show. The trio is back together. The Charlie's Angels of Career finance and asset protection and legal are all back together i'm alongside super sassy angel career advisor sergio patterson wow that was that may have been the best intro ever <laughs> what's up everybody how you yeah. doing and fallen angel attorney matt McElroy. <laughs> hey what's up how you guys doing good ready to go Doing awesome. well. I just need some coffee. I have not had coffee yet, but other than that, I'm doing great. Drink up, buddy. So today we have a really great episode lined up for you guys. This is going to be a business and thought leader edition. This is the part of the show where we get to interview special people that have done amazing things in their career. We get to learn more about their journey and what they've been through in their career. In this episode, we're going to be interviewing Alana Karen. She is an award-winning tech author She's a tech leader. She's a speaker. She's been for, uh, featured in Forbes, Women's 2.0. She's also been in the Stanford LinkedIn Influencers. This is a really special episode for us. And she just came out or is coming out with a new book this fall called Adventures of Women in Tech, How We Got Here, Why We Stay. So very exciting episode. And we'll also be talking about management style. Alana has been a manager at Google for, I believe, over 18 years. And so she has a wealth of knowledge. I've read tons of her articles. I'm a huge fan of hers. So if you are someone in a leadership position, you are going to want to listen to this episode. But before we get into it, if you guys haven't done so yet, make sure you like our show, share us, share us on LinkedIn, Facebook. If you want to hear other episodes that we've done in the past, Go ahead and go to thefreeretiree.com forward slash show. I'm going to go to the break and we'll be right back. Lee, I forgot Charlie's Angels existed. I totally forgot about that movie. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but who's Bosley then? Or... I'm Bosley for sure. <laughs> but you can't be Bosley and an angel, can you? <laughs> Welcome back into the Free Retiree Show. We're sitting down with Alana Karen, Google Director of Search Platforms. Alana has been able to make a massive impact in her industry. She's an award-winning tech leader, author, and speaker. She's spoken at multiple conferences, and she is dropping her book this fall, Adventures of Women in Tech, How We Got Here, Why We Stay. You might be asking yourself, how did the Free Retiree Show get such an amazing speaker? We may have told her that this is a TED Talk. <laughs> Alana, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, and, and it was super simple. Sergio emailed me and I was like, yes, that's it. That's, yeah, there was, that was all there it was no pushback. It was amazing. I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> you didn't have to go to plan B, which was uh, we might be a TED Talk. So 
that's that's exciting. Thank you, Alana. We really appreciate it. So what do you do for the, uh, tell the audience, what do you do at Google? I am a program manager leader um, and program managers are the people who typically help engineers get things done. Um, so engineers are really good at coding and designing. And, and in my case, I'm on infrastructure. So they're very good at thinking about those systems. But often they aren't great at setting goals, setting milestones, tracking towards those things, um, dealing with people, dealing with people problems, figuring out why they aren't able to make decisions. Um, and so it's very much the operations arm of engineering. And my whole career at Google has been focused on operations. Yeah, and then also, I mean, we didn't really talk about it, but Google's or uh, Alana was also part of Google Fiber. Alana, if you're cool with it, I'd love to talk about that a little bit later. But Google Fiber was a really exciting project at Google. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did. Past tense. I mean, I've been at Google 18 years. So if you want the long story, I started on the front lines of AdWords, which is our ads product. I reviewed and approved ads and answered customer email. Then I took on a project around policy, what ads we accept and what we don't accept. That turned into a big arc in my career where I was building out a team to create, maintain, and implement policies for ads and other products um, and did so globally, got to do some other stuff along the way within our bigger sales and operations world, and then moved over to Google Fiber, um, had the amazing opportunity to work with Sergio. That's really the highlight, um, but also built out a, a good team, a great team, um, real highlight that was doing customer, customer support and installs for Google Fiber. Um, and then there was a year where we downsized the team supporting that product. And I proposed and implemented a program to help all the people find jobs who were displaced. And then I got the job in search. So I've had basically four different major jobs at Google during my tenure. Uh, it's been a really great ride. Um, you know, I don't, we can talk about pieces of it, but I think the main elements have been operations and leadership consistent. Yeah, that, that layoff, the program you guys put in place was like, probably one of the best in history, right? Like we, you gave us the opportunity, like we downsized. I was a part of that, Lee, I don't know if you remember that, when like uh, at Google Fiber, we like got essentially like laid off, but they gave us time to find jobs within Google or even outside of Google. It was just the care you guys showed for us was, I just want to call that out. It was incredible. Yeah, I do remember that. I remember you just talking about the kindness that you experienced from the company during the process. That was what really, really stood out to me. Yeah, it was, it was a dramatic shift, I will say. Um, there's lots of different changes and shifts that will happen within Google. This one was a real, like, we're scaling and then, oh, wait, we've decided that is not the direction we want to go yet. Um, and it displaced hundreds of people within a six month period. Um, so it was really dramatic. And because of that, I think it really forced the company to think, what do you do when you're pushing this many people at once back into the internal and external labor market. And of course they preferred to keep their talent. 
Um, so they really did want to give people time to find roles, hopefully within Google. Uh, but at the same time, and Sergio knows this well, the internal Google labor market is, is actually still hard to navigate. And so that's why I proposed on top of that ways to help people navigate it during that search. We had a lot of people, this was their first role at Google. They didn't have a ton of connections within the company. They didn't know, like internally, we use the Google resume, which is a longer version of your real resume. They didn't know how to do that. Um, they didn't know what interviews would expect. Some teams are very informal with interviews. Some re-interview you as if you've never been inside Google. Um, so just interesting period of time to figure out. And I will say that I now see companies as they um, have to do real layoffs using some of that, uh, whether, whether they know it or not, whether we're just recreating things, but it does seem to be becoming, if you can financially do it, a bit more of a best practice to give people more generous severance packages to float them um, more assistance, more career resources um, to help land them, which I think is great for the industry. So Alana, we had a couple people writing questions for you. We'll give you those through the course of this episode. But one thing that people noticed was 18 years at Google. And, they, and the person that wrote the question just wrote, how? So in this, you know, in the tech industry, there's, it's really quick turnover, right? I mean, people jump from job to job in the Silicon Valley. I mean, it's, it's really rare. I think even if you're there for a few years to still stay at a company. So I think it is a great question. How did you, have you stayed there that long? If someone is keeping you there beyond your will blink twice, but tell us, <laughs> tell us, how did you, how did you uh, end up wanting to stay? At Google. Will you tell everyone how young I look too? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It looks like this job isn't stressful at all for you. Which is like the opposite. I feel like I've been there way longer than 18 years. Um, uh, you know, I think it was a, I think some of it's my background and my personality and some of it is Google and the opportunities it's had. So for context, I came from a background without a lot of money. I went to college and studied history. Um, I could have minored in either French or creative writing. You know, huge money makers, everyone. Um, I became interested in web design and HTML on my own and self-taught my way into my first job at the University of Virginia as a webmaster. And I then made a leap to a startup that didn't work out in the Bay Area and then got the job at Google after 9-11. So the context is, I've always been very grateful for this job. I am a huge fan of money. I, I joke with people that like, I basically am Scrooge McDuck. If I could have a room full of coins. I would spend a good healthy time swimming through it. I, I hoard money. Um, if you've never had that security, you will know what I'm talking about. If you've had it your whole life, you think it's insane. Like you just think I'm weird. Um, my husband has to float ideas 
for spending money <laughs> and like kind of let them settle in for anywhere from like a month to years um because i'm so reactionary i'm like why don't we just sit on it and watch it you you and, and lee are going to be best friends by the end of this episode <laughs> um, <laughs> financial advisor and yeah 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 so i mean uh, there's pros and cons obviously sometimes you know investments are a good idea some level of risk in your portfolio is good you know like i'm, I'm sure uh there are downsides to just sitting on it and, and, and stuffing it under your mattress. But I have loved the security of a what turned out, and I didn't know it at first, to be a wise career decision with a company that has you know, produced great money and given me stock on a continuing basis. And that has been a big component and i didn't even know necessarily in my early career to ask or want for anything else i was just so glad to be secure um there was no next there was like i like people would be like you should be more ambitious and i would be like what are you talking about <laughs> like isn't this it like um haven't i made it and so you know, I think there was a component of certain people come into the valley and they are using it very explicitly to climb towards somewhere. Um, and they have a vision for the future and they are collecting up experience for that. And I was much more, more, more organic. I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, I landed in this startup job by virtue of my technical interest, and I was navigating opportunities as they came along. I think the second part, though, is Google had opportunity. Um, at various places, when I was feeling like I'd maxed out on whatever I was doing or I wasn't learning anymore, I could find something new to do. And sometimes it was minor, like taking on a new project or taking on people management which I guess is kind of major, but I mean in the same role. And sometimes it was a more significant switch, like when I made the switch from policy to Google Fiber. Uh, and sometimes they were my choice and sometimes they weren't totally, right? I had to move on from Google Fiber by virtue of the business shifts. But I each time looked internally, looked at the external landscape and chose to stay. Um, I will add there's a third piece, which is I am very patient. Um, this too shall pass is a big piece of my vocabulary. Google has been annoying at times, and they've really challenged me at times. Google, The Google Fiber transition was a big one. And I have given myself time to think through those things and not make emotional decisions about them. So I think that's helped me land for better or worse, who knows. Um, but that's, that's, that's how in a very long answer. I love that. I love that question. answer. I mean, you went deep into your childhood. So that was a fantastic answer. I love that. So Lana, you have a, a book coming out. I want to know what is it about and what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, the title gave it away. It's about women in tech. 
and I got annoyed that I wasn't seeing the book out there that I thought truly reflected both myself and the women that I'd worked with in tech. And that's partially because of what we tend to be attracted to. So a lot of the stories that you would see out in the world, whether they were books or articles, were about women who made it to the tippy top and who'd made it through everything and were successful or women who were having terrible experiences, unfortunately, and what was going on with those experiences. And while those things are happening, I was hearing from a lot of women and I felt that those stories weren't necessarily relatable, that there's a whole bunch of us in the middle having meaningful careers in tech, navigating everyday obstacles, and staying for years, decades, et cetera, um, in a version of success, like in a version of surviving or thriving. And I really wanted to dig into that. And so I, you know, in classic Google hubris, I was like, I'll write the book. <laughs> I interviewed 80 women and got to it. Uh, and that's, that's been the journey. Was there a criteria for the women, the 80 women that you went by? Yeah, there was. I was, I was very focused on the middle. So I didn't want to interview that many COOs, VPs, et cetera. I wanted to get people who'd been in tech at least a couple years through too many years, but had sort of stayed in the middle right? They were either individual contributors or they were managers, maybe directors, but essentially in that middle bucket. And there's a couple more senior people sprinkled in. But for the most part, I was trying to get to that piece of like, well, the majority of us are everyone else. Um, what's going on in there? And so from a title perspective, that would I, what, what I was looking at. Beyond that, I was looking for diversity. So I was looking for, you came from different backgrounds, you had different ambitions, you wanted to be different things when you grew up, you have different race profiles. Hey, Alana, quick question. Um, you know, looking at your title, Adventures of Women in Tech, how do, how do we got here and why we stay? I think it's a great title. I'd love just to like, if you could think back, like how'd you come to this title and how did you decide on it? Yeah, so I had a working title while I was interviewing women that was Surviving or Thriving, Women's Stories of Building Careers in Tech. And it was interesting to have a working title. I always said it was, you know, just a tentative title. Um, people would react to it different ways. They, some loved it. Some loved this concept of, surviving or thriving because they really felt like from day to day that varied um and they just like got their brains moving other people found it like incredibly trite and repetitive and they would just be like they would make faces it's like why you do not tell people the name of your child before they're born right. like you do not want opinions um and so but i i did in this particular case like i had a working title for a reason and over time, as I saw how the interviews took shape and what was coming out from women's stories, 
I also just didn't feel like it was the right title because it makes it sound very like you're one or the other, you're surviving or you're thriving. And there's a chapter now called Surviving or Thriving, which really shows that no, it's this huge continuum. So it really didn't make sense. And really what it sounded like to me after talking with women was much more about that like hero's journey. There are ups, there are downs, there are times when you need other people, there are times when you're alone and you're navigating it. And so ultimately it led me to that adventure theme and really doubling down on that and, and thinking about, um, yeah, I mean, how did we show up here and how did we stay and what does that look like? I also just wanted it to be fun. I feel like a lot of the books make it all sound like drudgery, like how did you get to the top? How did you climb the ladder? Um, and I just, I just wanted it to be more fun underneath it all. I mean, the book has fun parts. It has sad parts. It has hard parts. It has good parts, right? Like, and, and I just didn't want it to seem all bleh. So Alana, one thing I want to ask, and, you know, just before I say this, like, I have a ton of respect for you, even though we barely met from everything I've read about you, the articles I've read, and just the fact that you are in the role that you're at. And to be honest, the fact that you are a, a woman really that makes me happy because the truth is in the silicon valley this area is dominated by men right would you would you would you say that's fair enough to to say i would say it's fair i will say certain women's experience vary depending what team and what world they're part of um, because some teams have more diversity, but particularly if you're looking on the technical side, the numbers are low. So what's the number one advice for women trying to navigate this part of the Silicon Valley or in any area of corporate America? You know, it's really interesting to ask this right now, because I think we're talking more than ever about the systemic issues like the structural pieces of how we exist not just in business but in america um particularly for black people but but overall i think these questions are coming up that prevent us from doing things and i think there's a real it's it's a tricky spot because i want women to have tools to navigate I also do not want them to feel like it's all on them to do this on their own, um, partially because that's not right. <laughs> like that's just wrong. We all have to pitch in, we all have to help. The structural things won't change with just women banging you know, their heads harder against walls. But also because that toll is why you then see women leave earlier. Um, we're, we're watching the stats for women. We're wondering why they don't ultimately stay in tech, why they might leave earlier, um, exit at certain parts of their career. This is true for other minority stats as well. And so that toll, that burden, if you picture people climbing up a mountain, how many rocks they have to carry while they carry 
while they go up that mountain, we know it's harder for some people than others. So that is my disclaimer, which is just that I think that this is, it is a part of the world to, to deal with. Um, but if you are trying to navigate the current state where there will be obstacles and there will be issues and you will be talked over in meetings or you will wonder why you didn't get the job or whatnot. In the book, I list five things, but I think that the number one thing that I saw that many women had developed was a certain level of resilience. Um, that if they had been in tech and they'd been in tech for a while, that they either naturally, and they will call it a ton of different things, grit, hard-headedness, you know, like what some of them complimentary, some of them not so complimentary, like some of them would call themselves obstinate. Um, some of them felt like they developed it over time, a thick skin, tough skin. One woman called it Teflon skin. Um, but there was just a certain amount of like, what you say about me isn't true, or I will take it and I will figure out what to do with it, but it won't stop me. Um, hard days are hard days, but I will continue and I will figure out what to do with this and I will continue on my career journey. And I think that we, ne we don't necessarily think of that as a skill. We think of it as like a characteristic of a person or a, a personality type. Um, but I, what I saw was women develop it. They, they over time think about it. And I think if you know that coming into your career, you'll move faster if you just know to develop that earlier. Many of us kind of hit our 30s before we really are like, oh, whatever, I'm not going to listen to that guy or I'm not going to listen to that person that ignored me or, or put me down or whatever. Um, and if one of the things my book was trying to help with was, can we do that earlier? Can you feel like you belong earlier? And can we accelerate how women feel like they can navigate their careers in tech? So that's my long answer. I, I think I don't want to just say, oh, be stronger, ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think that that's a real error. Um, on the other hand, is it a skill that you absolutely can use, develop, and will help your success? A hundred percent. So Lana, we had a question come in for you and I'll read it off to you. And I uh, just want to get your take on this as a woman who's been surviving the Silicon Valley ecosystem for over a decade, but yet to feel like I'm thriving in it. What do you recommend as a change? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I talked with some women in interviews who are for the book who are in a similar place. And it's not uncommon, I would say, around like to be kind of in that decade to 15 years mar place and feel stuck or feel like what's next. And I think there's a, a combination of things going on because our early careers in tech can be very much survival based, right? Like you're trying to reach some level of establishment and you're also, I think, more likely to believe what people tell you about your performance or how you are progressing or let them be in the driver's seat. 
So you can kind of go for like eight to 10 years, you know, in maybe even a few different roles, kind of rolling with that. And then you get to this place where you're like, well, does this meet my career objectives? Am I stuck? Am I not getting promoted? Do I buy why they're not promoting me? Um, do I believe it? Or do I think there's something systemically not working? Or do I think my manager hasn't got my back? Or whatever it is going into it. I think really thinking that through, thinking about your goals and motivations. And this isn't necessarily, this is a different question than what do you want to be when you grow up? I think that the what do you want to be when you grow up question sucks. No, I mean, most of us don't know. Um, you're lucky if you do. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's a burden. But, you know, I, I think that most people don't know the ultimate direction. They're navigating the opportunities or trying to create opportunities in the moment. And so the, the more immediate goals and motivations I think are more interesting. Like in the next year, what skill would you like to build? Like, what do you like to do that you haven't been able to do? And so this question is a, like, a little bit more of like, what would make you feel like you're thriving? Is it that you're missing a sponsor or a mentor? Is it that you have been at a company a long time and you're not seeing upward growth? And then setting very specific one or two things that you could do in the next year to change those things. Um, and so if you don't have a sponsor within your company, who could you start to reach out to and meet? You know, what would be good groups to join to potentially get more support? Uh, how could you volunteer for things that might get you on people's radars? Like what are the exact things that you could do? And I would recommend that they don't feel like these enormous shifts. What I see is that sometimes people will look at the gap between they want to get and where they are and they will decide they have to go back to school. <laughs> that you know, is so like common. Really common yes, you are right on hundred percent. And I'm like, Okay, okay, <laughs> slow down for a second. <laughs> like I wanna understand a little bit more because as we know, school is very different than work experience. And for you to go off and say, I'm gonna go study this thing, like is that really gonna help you with anything that's work applicable down the road? Separately from that, you will pay money for that. And while there are free to cheaper to, tuition reduced programs out there, make sure that's really the investment that you need. And what I tend to find is people just have decided they need to get more technical to bridge that gap. I should use words. I'm waving my hands around, which is going to help nobody. <laughs> um, and I time and time again, do not agree. Uh, I do not look at where they are and where they need to get to, even if they want to go down people management role in a technical group and think learning to code is going to help with that gap. Um, what I see is, you know, how are you dealing with conflict? How do you tell people that you don't think what's going on 
is the right direction? How do you strategize? It's just very often not technical and you're not going to learn it in school. It's going to be something that you practice and you learn by doing and you throw yourself out there and you fail sometimes. And I think sometimes why people go to school is that they think it will help guard against that. It seems like a good way to prove themselves, but I, I don't think it necessarily does that. Now, if you love school, by all means, go for it. Like I, some people just thrive and love that environment. If you specifically want to switch careers and go from, say, being a customer support agent to being a data scientist, yeah, maybe. Okay, I buy it. Um, but mostly, I think that you need to throw yourself out there, volunteer, meet people, network, get some experience doing things, and grow from Alana, there. that's a brilliant answer. Honestly, it is a brilliant answer because I'll tell you this, society hasn't trained people to want to hear that answer. Everyone that is kind of lost in their career, it's like, oh, go back to school. Big applause for you. you you're going to do it. We're going to all that debt and it's going to be great. Yeah. But, you know, that's the show is all about kind of calling out the BS. And that is way too that happens way too often. And I, I love that your perspective on that, especially, you know, the solutions that you provided. Get out there more. Network more. Why don't we hear about that? School is always, oh, go go take out another loan for this more education. Don't get experience. Just get get that get that that piece of paper that is going to cost you tons of money. I, I just love your answer. Yeah. Also. Yeah. I mean, I will add just a little corollary to it. There are places where I think school is helpful, especially if you're moving back to more traditional industries. If you're moving back to like manufacturing, for instance, um, or commercial goods, uh, you want to get a job at Procter and Gamble. You want to be in management. Sometimes they really do look for that MBA. So I'm not going to say it's not a good idea at all, but be really aware and make sure it is required for your goal. Because <laughs> otherwise, I would look for things where you can keep making money and you can have more fun learning by doing while you're doing it. You also mentioned something about um, getting more technical versus what I kind of took away was soft skills. And I'm seeing like a growing trend on the importance of just being able to communicate, work with stakeholders. And in like, I, I'm seeing like that move from like, oh, I wanna be a coder, I need to be super technical and how important it is for our engineers and our technical people to be able to work well with others. Um, can you just touch on that quickly? Ali, I know we probably need to pivot soon, but like- I think we're naturally like, pivoting, honestly. This is perfect. We're going yeah, right like, into so her management ability. Yeah, like soft skills um, versus um, just, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, what a misnomer, right? Like, is this not the hard stuff, right? Like going to someone and telling them why you disagree with them, bringing up in a room full of people that you have the differing viewpoint, um, somehow navigating people who, I mean, it's usually around base level disagreement and trying to reach consensus, trying to form a strategy and move forward motivating people, you know, getting people to actually do what you want. I mean, time and time again, I hear this stuff is the hard stuff. I have mentees and one of them was talking to me about a particularly difficult person 
And I said, oh, you've got a toughie. You're dealing with a toughie. And he was like, I love that. I'm dealing with a toughie. Like there's a name for it. Like you've named it. And I'm like, yeah, it's just, a, that's like that person's in your way. And you either decide whether you're going to try to change that person, go through that person or avoid that person, right? Like you're going to go around that person. But like once you've named it and you know it, it's, it's dealable. And instead we're leaving a lot of people right now in the place where they think it's them or they think it's just like some skill that they don't have. Um, or, or it's that something personality wise, right? You're either born knowing how to read a room and navigate people or you're not. And it's because we focused on these other skills, which in my mind are easier. Like, and I know some people would disagree with me, but like you could sit down and take a class on Python. You may like it, you may not like it. Some people have a bigger aptitude for it but it is navigable. It is essentially math and science, so it is knowable. Whereas people is this vast terrain of unknowable things. And you do not know if you do something necessarily that it will work. You can come up with something that you think always works and you will finally meet a person that it does not work with. So it is this unnavigable thing. And while there are tons of super difficult technical problems, I don't wanna undermine that. I watch people deal with them every day. Um, the, the people place is so ambiguous that it can really stump people. And some people make entire careers out of avoiding it, right? Like, you know, the engineers that are like, please do not meet with me. I will be in a room coding and you all can go to the meetings because it is so difficult, right? It is so difficult to do. Um, so I think, you know, my guess within five years, just like we've had new verbiage about things like belonging, soft skills will get an entirely new name. Um, and I think that we are seeing, to your point, a growing recognition, especially as some of these technical companies get larger and larger, that what got us here won't get us there. Hmm. That the ability to just kind of brute force your way through without tackling some of this stuff will be the difference between successful companies and less successful ones or keeping your competitive edge or not. Um, and so I'm expecting and already seeing a growing focus on this. Um, more and more training courses for managers, more for individuals. And obviously a lot of the work that we're doing on unconscious biases and structural racism and all of that stuff applies to it as well, like a certain level of self-awareness that we were not expected to have five, 10 years ago. Um, and I think it all will add up to a different place. I think sometimes a kind of overly sensitive place, which I think we have to watch out for, um, just to make sure that we're being as healthy with each other as we can be, but still a place where we're much more aware of how people feel and how you bring them along and what the room is and all of these types of things that before you just didn't have to do, honestly. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's interesting because I've noticed a lot, when I say like my best managers, I think have all the things you're talking about. Empathy, care, um, passion, being able to listen, being able to like move obstacles when there's roadblocks and you know, they're like working at, I work at Facebook now. I worked at Google and like, you can't get anything done alone. 
you need all these different stakeholders to get things done and there's always going to be somebody in your way. So my best leaders are ones that can help me navigate those situations um, and empower me. Right. So like all those traits to me, that's when I, when I say a good manager, that's what a good manager means to me. Yeah. And Alana, like I've said before, I'm a huge fan of the articles you've written. Uh, so for people that are out there that are really, you know, trying to get that knowledge of management and business, I would recommend that you go and check out Alana's articles. Cause I feel like that's better than any MBA program you could get. I'm just serious. I really, I really love what you've written. Um, one of the articles that you were, that you did, um, I'm not sure how long ago you, you wrote it, but what I loved about it was the honesty that you put into the article. You were talking about how uh, when you started off as a manager, you had, you know, you were still trying to figure it out. I think you referred to yourself more as a transactional leader versus a people leader. Um, give us a little bit more on what that is. And, you know, for the listeners, it was an amazing article because she actually listed all the negative feedback that she got in the article. And I was reading this off and I was like, man, it takes a strong person to write down their negative feedback point by point by point through the article. I mean, I was like, my heart was like, ugh, like, oh, they said that about you? Oh, how dare they? So what does that mean? Like when your transition as a leader, can you explain that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for context, the article series you're talking about was a LinkedIn article series at first. I've also have it on my blog and a couple other places, but basically went through my 18 years, or I think at that point, 17 years of feedback and, and like performance feedback that I'd gotten during performance reviews. And for context, Google has a process where you get feedback, not just from your manager, but also your peers. And so I had regular feedback from the people who reported to me or the people who worked with me about my strengths and my areas of weakness. And I focused the article series on what I learned. So it ended up being a pretty harsh journey. I mean, obviously they were saying nice things about me too along the way, but it was a pretty harsh journey of what does it take to become a great performing individual contributor who became a manager and then had to learn that they weren't the same thing. Um, And I think that often that's what happens. We are a very strong individual performer. And by virtue of that, we get asked or we get hired into a management position. But the very things that made us successful as individual contributors are our downfall as a manager, typically. Um, And so, you know, just for context, I was a hard driving, work around the clock in my 20s, you know, that just that early career person. And I would check things off the list. I was very operations driven. And I thought up until that first review as a manager that I was a great manager. And then people were like, no, no, no. Like she has no like understanding. Like she works around the clock. She holds us to unreasonable expectations. (laughs) Like I just was apparently not good. Um, And it took a journey to figure out, okay, well, what is it that people need from me? And like multiple years, I mean, there's a series of articles aren't there 
of me figuring that out, figuring out how I was going to motivate people, how I was going to support them, how I wasn't going to micromanage, how I was going to give them space to answer questions and not interrupt, um, you know, how I was going to truly delegate and not keep my fingers in the pie because I was concerned about control. Um, just everything that I was so good at as an IC that I'd essentially been trained to do was not right when you got to people management and you were supposed to be stewarding people's careers and growing them. And yeah, I mean, just brutal, honestly. And, and I think what was great about writing that article series was that I just kind of written myself off as sort of sucking at that period of time. But as I read through the feedback, like all of this was happening in a four-year crazy period. And I think that I just started to feel a ton more sympathy for myself too. Um, you know, I have a ton of empathy for other people, but I don't always express it towards myself. And I was like, oh, like who would do that well? Who would racing through what you were racing through, dealing with the sensitive subjects that you were dealing with, doing all of these different things and trying to grow this quickly, who, who could pull that off that quickly? And so I think it also reminded me, which is what I tell other people, that it's a journey, right? Like if you take on in, you know, management responsibilities, it is probably going to be a multi-year journey of figuring out what that job is and how to balance growing and nurturing your people with getting things done. Um, so yeah, I mean, just a real moment in people's careers. And I do think that those articles demonstrate my, my, uh, my rocky road. Yeah, I think it was great to see that. As I read the articles too, it showed vulnerability, like vulnerability one, and I think it showed that it wasn't, it's not all smiles and rainbows all the time, you know, in this, in the Silicon Valley world. Um, but the fact that you were able to overcome that and learn, I think just like blew me away when I read it. And I think a lot of people early in their careers or early people managers need to read this because a lot of the things you're saying, like I've encountered that with, with newer people managers. Um, yeah. So I think they're going to find themselves over time, but it takes time, like you said. Well, and I think if you don't see examples of that where you're like me and you came out the other side, you think that you're either made for people management or you aren't. So when you receive that feedback, you might think, oh, this just isn't for me and I should leave or this is who I am and people are just going to have to deal with it and think of it in a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset mode. And so I do think it's important that we see examples of the hard feedback everybody gets and that sort of Einstein, like you all only see the time I got it right. Like you didn't see the million times I was wrong kind of mode. Yeah. Matt, he said it better. Matt, Matt and Lee, um, for more context, like Lana mentioned performance reviews, it's like super intense at Google, at Facebook. It's a crazy process. I don't know. We don't need to talk about it, but like you get a ton of like written feedback, both good and bad from your peers, from your manager, from everyone. And it's like, to me, I think it's a very stressful process um, because you're getting all this at once. And I think good managers do a good job of delivering it. Bad managers can, it can go sideways pretty quick when you're delivering uh, some, some bad feedback, but it's for another, it's for another show. <laughs>
How many people are, I'm just curious, how many people are involved in these reviews, like total? Like in what, like say just reviewing one person, how many people give feedback? Answer. Yeah, it depends. Um, because if you're really new, you might just ask like two people, but I've seen people going up for promotion who ask for a ton of feedback because they're bolstering their case. Um, so I think it falls, you know, I think average is sort of five people have given you feedback um, and usually on your strengths and areas for development, sometimes the wording changes, varies by company, whatnot. Um, and the frequency will vary by company and not all companies do it this way. So high, high variation. Um, but at Google, we have historically done it twice a year. This year for the first time, we're doing it once a year because of COVID. Um, so we'll see how that goes down. And it is stressful. I think it is stressful because it is hard. Part of the process is to write a self-assessment. And that is stressful. Most people do not like talking about themselves or it is very difficult to talk about themselves. People feel a certain level of pressure that this is part of their record and they are skeptical about how that could be used pro and against them. Um, and so there is like the scrutiny on every word and it takes time. It takes time that a lot of times you, you just don't feel like you have. Um, and then you have to go in and write about your peers and you're trying to figure out how to give constructive feedback. And then there's this process of getting feedback from your manager. Um, the nice thing is that you see what people wrote yeah. for the most part. So even if your manager kind of put a, a, an interpretation on it that you're not sure about, you can see if the peers said it or not, right? Um, it's, it's not necessarily that you have to just buy your, what your manager says. That is the benefit of 360. So during this time, I imagine you might be showered with like little gifts from employees, little Starbucks gift card here. <laughs> before these reviews happen. <laughs> that is generally frowned upon, but I find that they are somewhat more attentive to you during the period of time when they know you are determining their rating, which impacts their comp and equity and, and future, future things. So Alana, I have just one more question on you know, your management experience. You mentioned before, you know, being a good manager isn't about ruling with power it's about getting people to want to do things. How do you do that? Like, how do you get people that you manage to want to do things? So it starts with hiring. And Sergio will remember when I was hiring for Google Fiber, right off the bat, I said we were a customer-focused team. And we were really clear, if you do not, if, if customer and customer service is not your jam, you will not like this team. Like it is everything we talk about. It is every team meeting. Our value system is all constructed around it. And that really helps because often customer service teams are the teams that people could use as an entry point, as a springing board. And while that can be great, it can degrade when you need to really develop awesome customer support at scale. It can degrade if, if you have a bunch of people like that, that's not really their thing, yeah. right? Like they just don't really like, that's not what they wake up thinking about. And so when we were interviewing people, 
we were looking for their skill set, but we were also looking for that, like, you've shown a natural passion and inclination for this space. You have the motivation. And so I think that's really important because sometimes teams hire without knowing their value set or having their mission figured out. And then they wonder why they can't get people to buy into plans. And instead, I had a group of people that would bring me ideas. Like I just kind of got to sit back and wait for the proposals to roll in. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was fundamentally lazy. Um, and, and it really works if you're building this system right from the start that feeds towards an ultimate goal. Um, and, and then you treat them well. <laughs> it's fundamentally the second part. Like then you're in there and you're thinking about what do my people need to motivate, to be motivated? They need to know the strategy. They need to know where we're heading. They need to see that when they do good things, they're recognized. Um, they need to have some fun, right? Like, like what are these things that keep your team motivated and you focus on those things? Um, and so there were periods of time where we were hiring more and I would really focus on the hiring. And there were periods of time when I would be much more focused on, okay, how do you take care of this team? Um, and how do you really, if you think of them all like seeds, how did you build already fertilized ground for them? And then how do you nurture them along the way? You're essentially just the rain and the sun. Um, and what are you doing to feed into that system? And, and then they took it from there, honestly. I mean, it was amazing. It was beautiful. I mean, Sergio knows his team would just come up with ideas all the time. And I would be like, sure, try it. Hey, I can Great. Try it. Like a lot of like from the hire, I didn't even think about hiring, but that's fundamental. And you've hired amazing people. Like that team was somewhat shout out to the CXI team, but even like outside my team, like uh, Beth, Amber, Kendall, that you guys are amazing. Everyone else was awesome too. Also, like you guys just hired genuinely good people. I feel like also, I don't know if that's a trait you can, you can hire for, but like everyone just seemed to get along for the most part. There wasn't as many toughies as you called it earlier. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we had passionate people, yeah. and so sometimes you could run into like real loggerheads or like debates or whatnot. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't from lack of passion, and I think that that. I mean, already, if you have people who are passionate about customer service, you have a bunch of people who care about other people um, and you care about people's experience with other people. Um, but also when you're interviewing, like how much do people bring up without you prompting team, right? How much are they talking about themselves and their accomplishments? How much are they talking about team when you ask questions about how they've navigated difficult situations with team members, like a, a colleague, how did they, you know, did they show consideration? Did they think about where the other person might be? Um, or did they escalate right away, right? Like what, there are things that you can see in interviews if you're looking for that DNA. Um, now, on the other hand, some of these things can be taught. So, you know, if, if, one bum question wouldn't necessarily knock you out of the running. Um, and it's good to have some level of diversity in teams. So, you know, maybe a passionate person who I think might be a little bit more difficult to convince might hold us accountable and be really honest. You know, if you always go for people who like 
get along, yeah. then you might be doing the wrong thing for diversity and actually just getting a bunch of yes people. Yeah. So, you know, you, you do have to watch out for this thing, but I, I would definitely look for people who, who um, had an element of thinking about others and in their careers and in what they were interested in. And that usually helped pave the That's way. That's a great answer. I love that. So tell us about your childhood. What was that like? Oh, my childhood. I just picture me smaller. I was kind of always, um, what did my dad say? 13 going on 30. I lived in New Jersey in a dormitory, a college dormitory, because my mom worked for a subset of Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey called Douglas. So it was an all women's college within Rutgers. And so I grew up in a college dormitory with college students all around me getting woken up in the middle of the night because they would burn popcorn <laughs> pre-microwaves. So if you remember those old style poppers, they would somehow get it wrong. Maybe they were drunk. At the time, I never knew. I just thought college students were uniquely bad at popping popcorn. <laughs> Um, but now that I think about it, you know, they, that would make sense that they didn't have their full faculties. Um, and grew up with a really feminist mom and uh, a very equal-minded dad, so kind of thought I could do anything. Um, they divorced when I was eight. We didn't have a lot of money. So a lot of kind of like the enduring characteristics, I think, were about being sort of independent early on you know, sort of being a latchkey kid, being independent, finding my way, feeling like I had to contribute to the family. And um, my parents spent a lot of money on our education. We were in a bad school district. So, you know, percent income wise, they spent a lot to send us to private school. And, you know, I felt that burden early on, but it was a great, it was a weird childhood, totally. But an interesting one. Like, I feel like it made me a better adult for having this really varied experience and being exposed to really different things early on. So now that you're, you've accomplished becoming a really successful director at one of the most powerful companies in the world, and now you definitely have money as opposed to your childhood, how does it impact how you raise and treat your kids? I think I've thought about this a lot because I have a lot of anxiety left over from my youth and I don't, I'm really glad that my children won't grow up with that. But on the other hand, I don't want to raise these spoiled in a bubble kids that don't know what real life is like. And so we try to be really clear with our kids. They don't get everything they ask for. Um, we're really transparent with them about where they are fortunate, what it would look like if they couldn't do this. We set barriers. Like my son right now wants his own computer. And last night he was talking to me and he was like, how much would it cost? How much would I save? How, how would I work for it? And he's 11. So I think we're just trying to like make sure that they have some sense of how the world really works. And one of the examples is that we yell at our kids. 
because the real <laughs> world would yell at you if you did some of the stuff my kids do. But I think that like we do some, I, I think it's a mistake. Some of this modern don't yell at your kids, try to rationalize and talk to them. They don't think like us, like their brains are not formulated like that. Um, and while I don't think it's great to always yell at them or, you know, be really rough with them so they're frightened about whether you love them or like any of those like fundamental things. Like I've literally yelled at my kids and been like, I am yelling at you right now because the world would yell at you and you need to know. Um, or like, I'll be like hit in the face, like walloped. <laughs> I've been hit with a bat by my four-year-old. <laughs> like you gotta know that if you went out on the street and hit someone with a bat, you'd get yelled at. Um, or there was this time that my son was apparently running around the streets of Palo Alto with a friend in a hoodie with a Nerf gun. Oh, no. And he got home and I said, dude, you are so lucky you're the color you are. <laughs> like, you know, you're a white blonde haired kid, so congrats. <laughs> Um, but you know the world, like that is not okay. Like you cannot do that. Like, I don't care if you were lucky and got away with it. That's just like a no, that's a big no. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like I think that stuff, they, I, I mean, I think much more than other kids, they know we're real people with, we get headaches, we get mad, we talk about it, we you know, we're going to treat you like people, but if you want the kind of privileges that you want, you're going to have to ante up. You don't just get them because. Um, and I think that, yeah, we're just, we're a, we're a different breed. Like we'll yell at you in a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. They got to be scared of you just a little bit. That's like my, I've got two kids and it's like my wife, they're terrified of my wife. Like she's the bad one. She's she disciplines. Everyone's terrified of your wife. This is true. <laughs> um, Just kidding, Kim. Love you. You're not kidding. <laughs> um, but no, it's all about what you said. I'm just saying. I think there needs to be some sort of level of discipline, and I think we're getting to the point now where it's like you're not allowed to yell at your kids. You're not allowed to be mean to your kids. You're not allowed to be real with your kids. And it's like people will look at her like she's crazy when she's telling my son, like, no, you need to respect other people. You don't talk back to your grandparents. You don't talk back to me. So uh, I'm all I'm all for it. I'm with you, Alana. Well, since we're talking about kids, like in your book, do you talk about being a working mom and how to overcome some of those obstacles um, and just what what that's like? I have a whole chapter. The way the book is structured. The first part of the book is very much about the diversity in tech and, and sort of introducing the different women, where they came from, their ambitions, et cetera. The second part gets into the pros and cons of being rare. And in that chapter, I have a whole chapter about, you know, trying to have a family and life. Um, and, you know, the, it's a very story-driven book. There is advice in the book. The last part gets more into advice for sure. But to some degree, it is so story-driven because I want to show how other people are thinking about it, navigating it, without necessarily judgment or a existential, there's a right way to do it. Uh, but I do think that a lot of the advice part gets into 
how are you going to decide what you prioritize at any given time? And it's okay to do that. I think they're like, we've gotten into a dangerous period where somehow, and somewhat self-inflicted by women, we're supposed to be all things. Um, we're supposed to be able to do these Pinterest perfect birthday parties, make organic food for our baby, but breastfeed because breasting, you know, breastfeeding is best. But at the same time, don't let your career slow down. You should lean in, right? Like all of these types of things. And that is hard and maybe impossible, right? Like I don't like to say anything's impossible. I'm the classic Google Googler, you know, like, you know, maybe you could work it out, but maybe not without a ton of help. And not all of us can pull that off, right? Either afford it or have family around or whatever. And so also not all of us want that. Some of us are going to want to focus on family more for a set of years. Some of us aren't going to like the baby stage and want to like outsource that, focus on our careers and wait till they're little interesting people. Um, and, and spend more time with them. So there's a real variety going on, and I think that we're not necessarily accepting that. There, there, you see, even with women talking to each other, these dynamic where like, maybe there's the best way, and we should keep like hammering on each other till yeah. we find the best way. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily right. Um, I think that you can decide that this five years are kid focused and the next five years are career focused. You can do that and still keep your job, right? Like you can, you can press gas on one and let the other be light for a little while. You can do all kinds of things. You just have to think through and decide and it's okay. Um, now some of that's a luxury of not, I, I guess what I want to say is not, some people just have to work for the money. Some people cannot work because they're in a situation where that works. So there's always some dynamics at play. And who am I to tell you which one's right for you? Um, there's, there's so much at stake and it's your life. So a lot of the tools are a little bit about that, being more intentional, thinking about it and having it be okay. I love that. I love the, the last part, having it be okay. Like my wife's been a, like, she's a stay at home mom. We just make it work. I don't make a ton of money, but like we make it work and I feel I would argue that some women who are career focused kind of look down on her a little bit. And I've been in a ton of conversations where they're just like, oh, you're a stay at home mom. Just like that. Oh, you're a stay at home mom. And they don't understand that that she's handling all the finances. She's handling organizing. She's pretty much a program manager of our house. It doesn't get paid for it. So like, yeah, I, I would yeah. actually promote her. Yeah. I would call her the COO or CEO of the home, you know, get her a hat or a name tag (laughs) um, and just have her introduce herself like that. I also think that there's a chance during this COVID period of time that people will come out of it with a better understanding of what that really looks like and what a job that is. Um, That, that could be the pro (laughs) of one of the pros maybe of the, that this period of time. Um, but yes, that's definitely a dynamic, but you'll also see, because I've seen it, you know, just dropping my kids off at school or whatnot, that there's just this dynamic between stay at home moms and working moms where both of us feel guilty. Yep. So both of us want to feel better. And so it helps like we're human, 
is all I'm saying. Like we're human and it helps us to think our group is better than this other group. Yeah. And it's just a really natural frame of mind. But I think that we have to watch out for that, be really aware of it and combat it actively. I do not think that that is, first of all, there is no existential rightness. And secondly, um, I don't think that that's good for women, right? Like we are not going to conquer a lot of the things that we're experiencing if we divide amongst ourselves. And every time we divide amongst ourselves, I feel like it's a game being played against us, that we're being manipulated and it's a way for the majority, whatever it is, to win. Um, I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. It's probably the, the one conspiracy theory in the book where I just feel like, you know, when we're, when we're off battling about breastfeeding or judging each other on shoes or makeup, who's winning? <laughs> are, are you going to be releasing an audio version of your book? I am going to be releasing an audiobook. In fact, in October, when I release my book, it will be the ebook and audiobook first. And then you can pre order the hardcover. I record the audiobook in August. So it's going to be so a really you, are interesting. Are you actually experience. the one, the voice? I am the oh, voice I, because I, I know that's it's awesome, so yeah. fancy. I thought it was a little weird. Listen, the book is like, there's huge chunks of it that are my story. And then. The, then And then there's a bunch of, I mean, like the book is like story after story, quotations from women. And I just thought it was a little bit weird. Like, who are you going to find to both do me and all these women? At least I should do me and then, you know, figure out how to do the women. I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to pretend to be them. I'm just going to figure out how to make it clear that I'm speaking from different women's point of views. Um <laughs> 80 women, maybe me doing impressions would be a real feat. <laughs> I would definitely offend someone. So who's the book specifically for? Like if I'm, uh, that was one question that we actually had. Like they wanted to know who's the ideal person that's going to get value or really appreciate reading your book. So the ideal person is a woman in tech or thinking about joining tech. Um, so either you're thinking about joining tech and you're not sure whether it's for you or you want a better context of what women's careers look like in tech or you're in tech and you're looking for either that sense of belonging, you're looking for a greater context on what other women are experiencing or you are kind of looking ahead. Like, what are these stories about women? I'm in my 20s. What are the stories about 30s and so on? The book will be great for allies to read, even though it's not targeted to them, because it will give them a ton of insight and they will likely have a haz from it. So how can people find more about your book? Where can they find it at when, once it comes out? So the best place to find out more about my book is alanakaren.com. You can sign up for a mailing list there, and I will be, as we get closer to October, sending out more and more information about what's coming. Uh, once it's out in October, it will be on Amazon and things like that. I still have to figure out how to get it distributed, and I'm going to try to get it into libraries and things like that um, so that it can be more broadly available. To close... You know, through business, we always have these aha moments that kind of just 
change the way we view everything. Can you share with us to close? What was your last big aha moment? I think my last big aha moment was as I was getting into writing this book, I really embraced going to different people and just saying, I don't know. And that was really freeing, actually. I think that we build up a whole bunch of fear going to people and appearing to not know things. We've, we've been taught that knowledge is best. But this exploration of, I don't know how to publish a book. I don't know best practices for writing a book or marketing a book or whatever it is. And walking around and going to people and reaching out to people that I didn't even think would respond to me and saying, I'm going to do this and I don't know, and you did it, or I think you'll have advice, or you might have someone who could introduce me. And just getting really good at that was a huge aha that it was A, great, useful, B, um, nobody judged me for it, C, to continue the alphabet. (laughs) And I think lastly, that it was actually a skill that probably other people had learned way earlier than me, but just like to go around and collect information and come out stronger for it was, was just an amazing experience and a total aha that I should have learned way earlier in my career. Love that. That's golden. Yeah, that's great. Lana, thank you for coming on our show today. Just want to give you a big thank you for spending the time with us. It's your voice in tech. Uh, it's powerful. I think you're doing a lot of good for that industry in general. Um, but very appreciative to you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Alana. Thank you, Alana. Thank you. All right. We're signing off. Thank you for listening to the Free Retiree Show. So long for now. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Securities offered through Securities America Incorporated. Member FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed with the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. The Free Retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career advisor Sergio Patterson and attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Security America companies. Securities America Incorporated, Security America Advisors, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. Third-party sourced information comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of Facebook Incorporated. The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.